carefully as I show you what the kindness of God is like. Picture for a moment the sumptuous banquet hall of King David in about 1000 BC. Since the atmosphere of royalty and all of its trappings, let the images of the colorful pageantry cross your mind with the finely dressed guards and banners, and let the sheer size and splendor of the room impact your senses. David the king is at the head of this magnificent company. He is in the prime of life, 45 years of age, in the fullness of life and power, and from an obscure door on one side, there is brought in a cot carried by four men on which is a slight figure of a man about 20 years of age and lame in both of his feet. It's the first time he's ever entered this dining hall. In fact, it's the first time he's been to Jerusalem in his entire life. He has bypassed the fanfare of entrance because he doesn't want to be noticed. He thinks it's enough just to be present there in the room. He knows that he has been told he doesn't need to fear King David any longer and his wrath. After living in fear for 15 years, page 20 has now been lifted up again. And a stir ripples across the crowd as David himself arises and, and walks over to greet this man. He ushers those who carry him to the head table and gives him a seat above all of the sons of David who are ranged around, all the princes of Israel. This man's name is Mephibosheth. His very name is a symbol of his degraded position. His given birth name by his father Jonathan was Marib Baal. It means either he strives against Baal, or it means he is a soldier of the Lord. You see, Baal is the Canaanite word for Lord, it, it corresponds to the Hebrew word Adonai, which, which is used at times to refer to the Lord in the Old Testament, the living God. And we don't know why he was given this name, but either in some kind of cultural accommodation to use a Canaanite word for Lord, or because of something worse than that, he was given this name that uses what is not only the word Lord, but is that the name of the Canaanite fertility god, Baal or Baal. And later in life, after David took the throne, it became unpopular to use Canaanite names for your children and to call them by the name of a false god. And so they substituted for the word Baal the word Bosheth, which means shame. So his name actually means uh, Mephibosheth, mouth of shame. More than 30 years before, Mephibosheth's grandfather, Saul, was the rightful king of Israel. He had been anointed by Samuel the prophet, and he had four sons, of whom the oldest was Jonathan, his eldest son and heir. Saul was the rightful king. He had been anointed as king and set apart, but in his zealous pride, he had disobeyed God. And God, in judgment, had said that he could no longer be king, but he would raise up, God himself would raise up a king for his own, after his own heart. And so God sent 
the prophet Samuel to go to an obscure place, Bethlehem, in northern Judah, to this small place in a family with seven sons, and he picked the youngest son, David, and there, only in the presence of his family, his household, Samuel anointed David to be king. No one else knew it, but David and his parents and his brothers knew that he was to be king. And uh, a lot was going to happen before David became king, at least openly, as a foreshadowing of things that were to come long after David's lifetime. He lived a, a life of danger and shame, being chased by Saul in the wilderness. As Saul became aware that there was something very special about this person and that people were acknowledging him to be the ruler. And just as Jesus, David's greater son, later suffered in his exile before he was exalted and acknowledged to be the king. And just as uh, David's greater son, Jesus, was baptized in a foreshadowing of the fact that he, in fact, was the king, even though no one recognized it, so David had been anointed in secrecy as a young man. But it would be many years and years of shame while he would wait for the throne of Israel to be his. It was a grueling old ordeal, those 15 years in which David was chased in the wilderness. He was now in favor with Saul, now out of favor. Sometimes Saul wanted him to play the lyre for him and sing his psalms in the throne room, but other times he would be seeking to kill him and chasing him with his armies into various wilderness places all over the land of Israel. And during that time, one person stood by him, even before his family stood by him. And that one person was the son of Saul, the eldest son, the heir to the throne of Saul, named Jonathan. Jonathan actually was quite a bit older than David. He was more of a father figure to him. But he recognized in David the chosen of the Lord and that this was the man whom God would establish as king. And so in an act of loving friendship, as well as political alliance, he pledged submission to David and all his descendants. He gave him a, a, a suit of his own clothing as a symbol of clothing him with royal authority as the son of the king and as a sign of the covenant that he had entered into with David. Patiently, David waited for the throne. Twice he was given opportunity to kill Saul. Twice he refused to do so. He was determined that God himself would be the only one to remove the anointed king. He knew what was going to happen, and he waited patiently for God to do that. And so he lived in the desert and in mountain retreats and in the forest. And finally, he, he actually uh, defected to a foreign nation, the Philistines, in the southwest of Israel. These implacable enemies, but because he was so endangered in the land of Israel, he defected to the Philistines and lived there under the protection of the king of the Philistines for a time. But the time arose when uh, the Philistines went to war against Israel, against Saul and his armies. David was saved in a rather miraculous way from ever having to participate in a war against his native country, the one he was to rule. But in the ensuing battle, Saul and three of his four sons were killed. Jonathan was one of them. 
The Philistines degraded their bodies, cut off their heads, and hung their, their bodies on the wall of the city of Bethshan. And on that day, when the, the news of Saul's death reached Jerusalem, there was a panic in the royal household. Jonathan's one son, Mephibosheth, was five years old. It was customary for a new king to kill off all of the descendants of a former king in order to eradicate any possibility of someone claiming the throne. And they expected that David would act in that way. And as second in line to the throne, and now first in line since Jonathan was killed in battle, Mephibosheth was a very important person. The servants expected that David would act in the customary manner. And uh, as a nurse gathered up the boy and ran with him to run away into hiding, she accidentally dropped him. And he fell in such a way as to crush the bones in his feet and both of his ankles. So that from that point forward, he was lame for the rest of his life. More than lame, we read later in his story, later in the book of Second Samuel, that there was a point where in sorrow he didn't take care of himself, Mephibosheth. It says he neither trimmed his beard nor cared for his feet, which implies that there was something about his wound that was lasting, not just disfiguring and handicapping, but it was something that perhaps like a seeping wound that a person might have that will not heal had to be continually taken care of. But when the news of Saul's death actually reached David in the land of the Philistines, he acted in a most unexpected way. His lament reached the skies, and he wrote psalms in honor of the previous king. And even David's most ardent supporters were taken aback by the things that he did. He did acknowledge that Saul experienced what comes to those who disobey the heavenly ruler, but at the same time, he acknowledged the greatness of the king and his love for Jonathan, his first friend and first supporter. Well, David returned to Judah, the tribe of the south, the tribe in which the city of Jerusalem is found, and he returned there and was crowned as king by Judah, the one tribe out of which he had come. They recognized him as the king of Israel, but Benjamin, the tribe from which Saul came, which bordered Judah on the north, and all of the northern tribes refused to recognize David as king for seven and a half, almost eight years. There was war between the supporters of David and the supporters of Saul. The war, especially as it wound down, uh, showed David to be the stronger. And David, in his wisdom and his grace, established Judah as a place of honor with laws that supported the law of God and exemplified it, and the northern nations recognized that. And so the tribes called that he would come to Hebron, a city just north of Judah. And all of the 12 tribes gathered there, and finally they crowned David as king of all of Israel. Now his rule was consolidated. He ruled in power and in security. God, in fact, spoke to him two chapters before this and gave him what we now call the Davidic covenant, the promise 
that it was not only from Israel that the Messiah would come, but in fact, it was from the physical descendants of David. In fact, God said, a, a man will not fail to sit on your throne until the coming of the Messiah. And we know now that Jesus was that man, David's greater son. And it was then, it was right at that moment when God had honored David. David had established his rule. He'd been, he'd been called king of all of Israel and united the nation. He'd begun to act for their benefit. It was right at that point that David asked this question. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Now, these are not words of a paranoid king, as Saul had been, who was seeking to find every last remnant of a previous dynasty in order to remove it. These are words of grace. They're words of peace. His love for Jonathan uh, left him no recourse but to find if there was anyone left, an heir to the throne, perhaps, of the previous king, that he could show grace to. Is there anyone left, he was saying, of the rebellious house of Saul who rebelled not only against the Lord, but made my life difficult for 15 years and more? Is there any one of those people who refused my kingship and for the last seven and a half years have even gone on and denied that I am the man whom God has appointed and made me live in disgrace and dishonor for all those years? Is there anyone left to whom I may show kindness of forgiveness? And mercy. And a servant says, Yes, my lord, the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Poor, afraid, obscure, harmless, hidden, Mephibosheth, mouth of shame. So David had him brought from Lodabar, a obscure city where he was living with a wealthy man under his protection. And he had him presented to himself in his, his very banquet hall. And he restored his lands. He restored his fortunes. He took the servant who had served the whole house of Saul for generations, Ziba, and he gave him as caretaker of all of the estates of Mephibosheth. But he said to Mephibosheth, you shall eat at my table always. And so we read in the final verse of the passage, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Now that is what the kindness of God is like. It means laying aside the garments of my shame and coming to the table of the king and being received into his presence as one of his children. It means being able to be provided for by the king of glory as his own. It means that I'm set free from the rebellion and the consequences of my rebellion as they've shown up in whatever unique ways in my life to be the man I was created to be. It means to be able to learn to live life as it was meant to be lived. And it means being called and ushered into the fellowship of the king of glory. And that is true for every person who is a believing son of God, a believing son or daughter of God. You are invited to this feast of freedom in the presence of the Father and in fellowship with the King. Now, what is it that binds you 
as you move through life? What is it that keeps you from being a free man or a free woman? What memories of the past or relationships of the present or fears of the future keep you bound so that you don't feel free to be the person you would like to be? What cycle of condemnation are you locked into in whatever your experiences are in life that make you feel in certain ways and act in certain ways, react to certain stimulations in your life in certain ways? What are those things that make it difficult for you to to come full face to God and to experience forgiveness and freedom and peace? What chains bind you? Mephibosheth's name means a mouth of shame. That fits us, doesn't it? While born to glory, all of us were as the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, established as the image of God on the earth, the image bearers of God. While that is true, we have turned from our heavenly destiny and we grovel with our minds on the earth, according to Scripture, so that our choices and our words and our feelings and our very thoughts betray how far we've fallen if we're left to ourselves. And like the lameness of Mephibosheth, we seem incapable of walking uprightly as the men and women we are created to be. And that's where the kindness of God comes in. You see, we talk about grace a lot. Grace is what happens when God sees us as sinners, rebellious people. And as Christians, we should never forget that is the starting place to understand anything about God, is that God does not look at us and see us as whole, complete beings that he just longs to enjoy in his presence. He sees us left to ourselves in this world as sinful. Our rebellion is self-chosen. We choose Unless he acts in some way inside of us and upon us, we choose to go away from him in our independence. He sees that as something to be condemned. But grace is where he comes in and he forgives us and restores to us even more than what we lost. But that's not what kindness is. Kindness is when God sees us not in our rebellion, but he sees us in the consequences of our rebellion. You know, sin leads to consequences, and consequences can be pictured outwardly in a person uh, who has so been emaciated and uh, impacted by the foolish choices of life that you can see it in the way they live. How many of you have ever read the book, The Picture of Dorian Gray? You're kidding me. I'm going to have to tell you the whole story. Dorian Gray, at the end of the 1800s, written by Oscar Wilde, is a young man. He makes a pact with the devil. The devil says to him, I will paint a picture of you as exactly what you look like now, a a full of life and zeal young man, handsome, all of the things that are true of you. And you can put that picture wherever you want, but my agreement with you is you you will give me your soul if I will let you live Looking like you are now for the rest of your life, you will never change, only the picture will change. Periodically, he goes up in his attic and looks at the picture. As he goes through life, and he lives a completely dissolute life, every form of immorality, drug abuse, dishonesty, anything you can think of is what he engages in. But people marvel that not only at age 20, but at age 30 and 40 and 50, he still looks like a young man, and the young women flock after him, and they love him, but the picture shows an old emaciated, toothless man, 
filthy in the degradation of his sin until the end when he destroys the picture and in a moment Dorian Gray becomes everything that the picture was and they find lying on the floor a toothless corpse, dirty, filthy, of a man. All that he had truly become even though his outward visage didn't show it. And that's a picture of sin. Sin is the condition that we bring ourselves into as a result of our rebellion. But when God sees us in our condition, he feels an emotion, and the emotion is not righteous anger. He feels that over our rebellion. He feels pity, compassion, like we might see a person long addicted to alcohol on the streets of some large city, dirty, cold, And we might feel this sense, I would do anything to change that. But we don't have the capacity to reach inside and flip whatever switch there is in the human heart that says, I will listen to this person. I will listen to God. I will do the things I need to do. We don't have that power, even though we might try at times. And the kindness of God to do it. But God is the one who has that power. And God sees us in our pitiable condition, emaciated by sin, lame, degraded, incapable of living for ourselves, taking care of ourselves in the way that he intended. And God enters in and he changes that. We have to see ourselves in our inability, caught in the sinkhole of sin and unable to change it. And God's kindness is when God reaches down and he says, is there anyone left of the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve to whom I may show kindness. He pulls us out of that condition, and he cleans us up, and he restores to us all the things that we once had, were meant to have, and even more in Adam, as the image of God. He does it at his own cost, because of his compassion for our miserable condition. Christ, our King, paid the debt in our place for our sins. And now in his kindness, he calls us back into his presence. And he opens his arms wide to receive us and make us his children and to give us the banquet hall forever. You see, God's kindness points not only to our sin as rebellion, but it points to our sin as disease, the consequences of our rebellion. And his kindness is the means by which, because of his deep compassion for us, he calls us back to himself, and he provides for us what we need. The living Christ, the king who will someday reign on this earth, reigns right now in his church. And and that's why, when we talk about this, we have to acknowledge God not only restores us to himself, but the place that he brings us is into the banqueting hall. And the passage ends with Mephibosheth 8 at the king's table with the king's sons. Because you see, he brings us into the fellowship of the people of God in which we have others like ourselves. He calls us as individuals to be forgiven and cleansed, but when he brings us in, he brings us to himself so that we experience the fellowship and the encouragement and the strength. He moves our hearts to true repentance, to sorrow for the vileness of our sins, so that when we drink in his words of forgiveness and grace, we find that they cleanse deep below the level of words. And he assures us that despite it all, we are forgiven. But that's not all. He brings others in with us so that we know his forgiveness and his grace 
in the presence of the sons and daughters of God. And he reminds us that he can take the material of our lives, no matter how degraded it has become, and he will use it as the raw material of our future to shape us into something significant and splendid. We are pictured in the Bible as the sons and daughters of the first king and queen of the earth, the ones who were given dominion over the earth and command to be fruitful and multiply. But because of their sin, we have been held responsible for it, and the consequences of their sin is not only our sin, but it is all the things that we carry into our lives deep inside that we don't see and sometimes outwardly as a result of wandering away from God. But as the rebellious sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, as the ones who thought to ascend to the throne and take the earth without God and make our own way, we are sinners in the same sense that Mephibosheth's lameness was his weakness that made him incapable of acting on his own. But in God's kindness, he says, are there any hurt, wounded, degraded sinners, any sons of Adam and daughters of Eve to whom I may show kindness for Jesus' sake? And that's what the kindness of God is like. Let's pray. Again, as we come to you, uh, Father, we thank you for this image of what it means to show kindness. It seems as I interact with people, there are so many people who want to know you, but they are uncertain of what that means. I pray that even this morning, if anyone is like that here, listening to what I'm saying, I pray that you would open their minds and their heart in such a way that they would understand that it is not because of them but it's because of Jesus that you are more than able to forgive and cleanse us, to restore us, to make us one of your own. Pray that you would help them see that all that they need to do is to turn away from all those things that seem to bind their minds and their hearts and turn to Christ and be embraced by his grace and forgiveness, and his kindness. I pray for each one who listens to your word today that in whatever ways people struggle with the uncertainty of your acceptance, we would place ourselves in the place of this, this man, part of the rebellious descendants, the king who made David's life so hard for so long and would find themselves embraced by you, brought into your presence and made children, provided for, cleaned up, restored.